Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well, I'm 30, Ed. That's how it's going. Mm. That's what's well, happened between uh, the last episode <laughs> I was on and today. That's the major news. Or as my mum often said in the 90s, you turn 29 again. <laughs> Yes, yes, Edwin's mum. Yes, <laughs> I will. I will happily have another go round of twenty nine. But genuinely, I'm 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 looking forward to my fourth decade and uh, chatting more with you about the movie films and the TV pictures. Yes, uh, I am as well. And uh, obviously, because it's your birthday, that means you get to pick the topic, and we'll we'll talk about that in a moment but uh, obviously we've been away for a week or two so we'll just do a quick rundown of some some news stories of note i think probably the biggest of course uh, was the oscar nominations which were out, announced last week when we were off the air and you know everyone's kind of gone over and, and relitigated it and we don't want to take too long kind of talking about it but what are your kind of broad thoughts about this slate of nominees that we've got this year oh yeah that little uh, that little shindig with the with the golden the golden man, the little stubby stubby guy. Surprise, surprise, Ed. Disappointing. <laughs> mm. Is my major uh yeah. I can always rely on the Oscars to make me thoroughly flumped. Horribly white. I think that's the main thing that's just it's it's white and male again. Which yeah. it, it just feels like a massive step back. And I don't know whether it is to do with the shift of what was meant to be a fairer, more representative voting system that it became a bit more, I can't think of the exact word for it. My brain wants to say multiple choice, but that's not right. But it's a bit less first past the post. It's more like the more people that vote for a film, even if they don't say it's amazing, the more response that we'll get. And I'm not entirely sure that that works here because then again, it does feel... I mean, how is how is Scarlett Johansson nominated twice? Mm. Uh, and, and given everything, it doesn't feel particularly radical. I think what is interesting about the Oscars is that even though the actual process and the nominations are not particularly interesting it remains that the dialogue around it the activism around it and the presentation of it still is like seared into my memory is Brie Larson handing over Casey Affleck's Oscar to him mm. stony face not clapping and it and it just felt it felt on a similar level to like Michelle Obama receiving that Tiffany box from Melania Trump it yeah. was that, how did we, what, how, what? And with John Cho and Issa Rae announcing the <laughs> nominations, it's like, well, this is the most diversity we'll see. So suck it up, folks. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched that and yeah, her saying congratulations to those men. It's kind of like, yeah, that, that sums it up. Beautiful. Um, like, and, and that we can have that incredibly memeable image 
from her and 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 her response is really important but again what's actually being done how is it going to change and i wonder whether the oscars are just pushing themselves into like irrelevance i think mm. i think ed in so many things we're at a tipping point where generationally <laughs> We're coming to, um, I want to say this diplomatically, <laughs> we're coming to a cusp, shall we say. And I wonder how the Oscars is going to change in like five years, right? In 2025, mm. if it's even still going, what the shift is in it. Because it's not to say, I don't want to do down the fact that in directing, Bong Joon-ho is there. Like, yeah. that's important. He's not relegated to, <laughs> you know the international feature he's he's in with four white men <laughs> mm. so yay for him i bet he's delighted and if he does win i cannot wait for his acceptance speech because i think it will be gloriously salty and let's not forget like his acceptance speeches so far have been more pointed and revealing than anything a certain uh english comedian who has had his <laughs> own uh film career could ever say but still it is just horribly white i mean there's some interesting stuff in in best documentary as i think there always is because it does seem to just have like a wider perspective of the world and i think um makeup and hairstyling is a really interesting category this year mm. and and for costumes as well but yeah, overall, just like, really? Is this it? it, it... Yeah, that's kind of my thought on it as well. Because even though if you look at Best Picture, there's a bunch of movies in there that I love or at the very least like. I think there's a decent slate of movies in there. And when I look at the people who are nominated, I kind of think, oh, you know, there's some people who are definitely doing good work and I can totally get on board with them being recognised. But you're like... You know, at the end of a year, that to me felt very interesting, that had a lot of really good, compelling movies from a lot of different perspectives that were kind of telling a lot of very interesting and kind of relevant stories. You kind of, this felt like the harshest kind of snap to, oh, right, yeah, the Oscars nominate things that feel like Oscar movies. <laughs> um, or... <laughs> In the case of something like Joker, things that kind of put on the patina of what an Oscar movie would sort of look like if it was about a mad clown. And I do feel as if that that to me is like the most disappointing thing about it. And I think that's that's true about like most years is, you know, like pretty much every year, if you're looking for things and if you have a wide enough view and you kind of try and see as much as possible pretty much every year is a good year for movies because there's pretty much always something good being made and something interesting happening but the oscars because their criteria is so limited there's only so many nominations it really does feel as if every year with some notable exceptions they pretty much always nominate the kind of the most boring things and that kind of feels the more like I, I haven't seen nineteen seventeen yet. Um, I'll probably try and get and watch. I try and go and watch it this week, so I can't say about you know whether it's good or bad or whether it deserves its nominations. But like, there just feels there's something like really, just so safe about the idea of like this movie that was released pretty late compared to everything else that was in competition. That is the most 
Oscar-y take on an Oscar-friendly subject kind of comes in and seems to be steamrolling to some major wins. And that kind of feels to that that to me seems to sum up a lot of the just general experience of of what the award season has felt like this year is that, you know, a lot of really good, interesting movies have been ignored and, you know, stuff that could have been released at any time in any year. Yeah. You know, kind of gets gets uh, gets lauded. Beige. Horribly beige. So uh, our next story, and this is just a quick one from that uh, was announced the other day, uh, was that a bunch of Netflix movies are going to get uh, Criterion Collection releases, specifically releases from this year, The Irishman, Marriage Story, American Factory. I think that's all of them. I don't think there was anything else. And uh, this comes up hot on the tail of them releasing a Blu-ray of Roma. And I find it to be... A very interesting development because obviously Netflix have for a very long time kind of positioned themselves as these great disruptors of how movies are made and how movies are released. And they have, you know, they've obviously had some success. Marriage Story and Irishman have both been nominated for a huge number of Oscars, uh, as has uh, American Factories nominated in Best Documentary. And there has been, you know, this big shift of people who would previously have gone to, you know, major studios or mini majors to get their movies made, now saying, well, Netflix will just throw a bunch of money at it and I can get this thing made without having all of the difficulty of trying to justify it to people from Disney or whatever. Yeah. Um, they are now you know, getting the chance to make these movies the way that they want, and that's really interesting. But it's it's quite interesting to see that they are... and They've entered this in, into this arrangement with Criterion, which is you know, very much amongst cinephiles, this thing that really imbues the movies that get released through it with a sense of importance, you know, the sense that they are being added to some sort of canon. And I just find that to be a very interesting development and and kind of, uh, certainly for me as someone who is constantly wondering about whether or not what kind of future Netflix has, considering, you know, the amount of debt they have and the fact that their entire model uh falls apart if they don't add subscribers you know like it's just nice thinking like well if they go bankrupt at least you know people will still be able to watch the irishman somewhere yeah before we get into the main topic of course we should pay tribute to uh, terry jones who passed away terry jones of course one uh, member of of monty python founding member of monty python writer and director in his own right made a lot of interesting good uh movies like uh you know wrote uh, labyrinth and therefore played an instrumental role in the sexual awakenings of an entire generation of people and also you know <laughs> eric the viking wrote a lot of great children's books and in his later years became something of a public face for dementia as he kind of started to to suffer from that and uh just by all accounts just seemed to be uh an incredibly lovely man in in addition to being you know one of the most influential comedic voices of his generation absolutely thanks terry yeah and uh yeah if you want a good cry watch the bbc interview of michael palin where he talks about him oh god yeah yeah no one wants michael palin to be sad (laughs) (laughs) so we'll go on to our main topic this week and as as we said uh, at the start of the uh, episode this is the first episode that's being put out since since your birthday emily and as is traditional on the show the uh, birthday person gets to choose the topic so why don't you uh let people know what we're going to be talking about this week well ed 
we are going to be talking about, because I have this birthday pass, Saturday Night Live movies. Hmm, yes. I don't think it's any any surprise to anyone who's been listening to the podcast for a little while that I am low-key obsessed, permanently fascinated with Saturday Night Live as a beer moth, comedically, culturally. Mm. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing this deep dive with you. Yeah, so uh, in terms of the the prompt, I guess, of the episode talking about SNL movies, I took that to be we're going to talk about not just the seven or eight movies that have been released <laughs> that are based on <laughs> on SNL characters because um, that's fairly limited because you could say like, oh yeah, like four of them are good <laughs> and then, <laughs> then everything else is not as good. But kind of talking about the relationship that saturday night live has with movies because in addition to you know the fact that we've had a bunch of movies made based on saturday night live ip inspired by sketches that debuted there the cast of snl particularly the casts that are kind of were on the show in the 70s 80s and 90s have in a lot of instances gone on to huge success in in movies uh often particularly if you look at some of the early years, you know, were in some foundational text of a lot of American comedy cinema uh, of the era. So um, we'll start by talking about the first five years of the show and, you know, the cast that emerged out of those years because those are very formative years for the show in terms of establishing a tone and what they're wanting and also because it produced some of the uh, some of the biggest stars obviously people like Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Chevy Chase, uh, Jane Curtin, Garrett Morris, uh, Bill Murray obviously, uh, Gilda Ratner and uh, Lorraine Newman and I think um, probably best to start with Aykroyd and Belushi who obviously had were, were um, amongst the the people who kind of had the biggest sudden um, burst of success and in, certainly in the case of Aykroyd kind of went on to the longest career. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but also, you know, it's important to mention someone like Chevy Chase who was the first person to leave the show because he felt he was too big for it, having <laughs> on, only done the first season, uh, had success pretty much immediately with a movie called Foul Play, which is now largely forgotten, but was a pretty big hit at the time before going on to do like, you know, Caddyshack, Fletch and things like that. But yes, so um, Aykroyd and Belushi were amongst the first to kind of really have successes outside of SNL in movies that weren't kind of made under the auspices of Lorne Michaels, the producer of the show, with things like uh, Spielberg's 1941 and Animal House. Probably their, the most significant movie of the period they're in was an SNL spinoff, which was The Blues Brothers, the most successful, when you were just inflation, SNL movie of them all, which I think was uh, a real showcase of why most SNL movies haven't worked, which is that for a lot of them, you know, you take a character and you go like, okay, let's do this character for 90 minutes, whereas The Blues Brothers had such a thin premise of a sketch Mm. which is these these two white guys are going to sing blues <laughs> for for three or four minutes. And they said, well, why don't we just kind of have them go on a road movie? They kind of like graft it onto something that allows them to do more things. Um, and, and also, like, one of the things I found quite interesting in going through all of the careers 
uh, of of all the SNL cast members is how very quickly I think you see certain buckets kind of emerge of you know how you can divide up the uh, the cast members and the first one would be your Chases, your Belushi's, and your Ackroyds and your Murrays who go on to become huge stars pretty much straight away headline movies that are big successes and then go on to well obviously Belushi didn't but go on to fairly long careers and you know kind of go on into the future and kind of evolve and change as artists and then you have people like Jane Curtin and Lorraine Newman who you know were in movies but for the most part if you look at their their careers it's more kind of like okay you were in this big show that was hugely successful and you know put you in front of the eyeballs of tens of millions of people but then rather than starring in movies you just kind of became a prolific and reliable supporting player in things like someone like Jane Curtin obviously went on to star in um Third Rock from the Sun which I think was the first thing I saw her in yeah same has been you know kind of a sporting actor in most recently the most recent thing I saw in was Can You Ever Forgive Me where she plays um Lee Ezreal's uh agent she's so and... good she's not in the film much at all but she's so well used like she mm. really makes her presence known when she is yeah uh, and then Lorraine Newman is someone who's just kind of become a very prolific um, supporting actor in things like uh, the uh, John Travolta, Jamie Lee Curtis, Thrustacular Perfect, the uh, Flintstones movie, Jingle All the Way, and then just loads of voiceover work as well. So it's very interesting that even from the early days of the show, you really do see two very clear career paths for the stars of SNL, which is you can become one of the most famous people in the world or you can be someone who probably never really has to worry too much about finding work for the rest of your life you know also you know someone like a gilda radner who um becomes a star in their own right but then obviously you know tragedy (laughs) tragedy occurs which is a terrible shame yeah there's the most amazing book for anyone who's interested in um, S- all things SNL uh, called Life from New York, The Complete Uncensored History of Saturday Night Live. It's quite yeah, a, oh, it's amazing. It's quite chunky and it goes into absolute like specific detail about the landscape before the show and then through immense detail. I think the most recent version, because they do keep coming back and, <laughs> and updating it, I think ends just around the 40th yeah anniversary um and it's just incredible because it's everyone talking about the show (laughs) it's everyone Mm. giving their own testimonies and it's weaved together really beautifully and i think what's so interesting is that from the off even with this first cast i think there was a sense of what Lorne michaels intended for all of them in terms of as a producer with potential and ambition and vision now Mm. i'm not trying to say that because i think Lorne michaels is also probably probably a horrific man (laughs) yeah he certainly doesn't from obviously you know you're you're the people who badmouth him are people who you know got kicked off the show or whatever but (laughs) like the people who don't get on with Lorne really do kind of think that say like not particularly nice things about him or even people who did get off and in and get on with him and at some point had a schism like you know um someone like a taron killam who mm. was on the show for, for for many years um but had like a real strong disagreement with him about them putting donald trump on the show and who 
got kind of dropped a little unceremoniously you can tell that like they've there's this real kind of hot and cold sense to lorne michaels if you get on with him and you chime with his sensibilities like he can be very warm and very supporting if he doesn't like what you're doing or you kind of have that kind of a falling out then you know you're dead to him (laughs) that seems to be the sense that i get i mean we look at succession and we think logan roy is based on murdoch but i think he's probably based on (laughs) lorne michaels like you're my favorite boy um and he does and he does have favorites like i don't Mm. i mean that's quite an open secret surely and it's interesting to see as he gets older is there ever a possibility of someone taking his place? I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself slightly, but what I mean is that I think that even though he is probably quite a horrific and difficult man, the impact he's had and the decisions he's made are undeniable. Mm. And I think it's what he put with this first season. I don't think he's ever actually doubted the show or his, or his, or his concept, his vision for it. So I think it's, the way that these people in the first cast, like particularly Ackroyd, Belushi and Chase, it just seems like so many different ego clashes. And of course they're like those in the mid seventies, like these big rock and roll sense of like egotistical superstars, like stand up before this and, and like live theater, it, nothing had been broadcast in this sense to this wide an audience and have this reach so I think there is this really like the the sense of ego that's in the first season and I Mm. wonder whether Lorne Michaels at the time was already thinking like well of course we'll do movies of course they'll all do Mm. well in movies I think one of the most interesting uh testimonies about Lorne Michaels um and there are I mean basically every second page is someone's opinion on Lorne in um Life from New York but the uh, WTF episode of Mark Marin, where he interviews uh, Michaela Watkins, mm. who is one of my favorite actors by far. I think she's absolutely magic. Mm. And her, she's managed to come to kind of a healing, calm acceptance of about her like year on SNL. But mm. talking about it with Mark and that he's still not, it's well before he gets to interview Lorne Michaels himself and that he cries and it's so huge it has such a massive effect on people and don't think twice the mike babiglia film Mm -hmm. with uh keegan michael key and um gillian jacobs and a lot of really brilliant you know chris gethard like a lot of um comedians i think there is this like to me that film really got across this split of like yes snl is this juggernaut but there is a whole i mean don't think twice does lean into a bit of being like actually improv and being with with live people in theatres is more wholesome somehow or purer um and that to get on snl you do have to basically sacrifice an awful lot and uh, your dignity is one of those things so i think and i know i'm sort of jumping about time wise but i think don't think twice is like a response film to snl so i think it kind of is under our umbrella of films that mm. are sort of spin-offs in some way from SNL because it is just so huge but these early years set the template for Lorne Michaels being really fucking calculating mm. <laughs> and he wins yeah I think also one of the things that's quite interesting is how early you see him try like you say like thinking oh of course we'll do films but like 
taking the cast that he has or people who, you know, were writers on the show or whatever and trying to spin up projects for them, you know, like mm. um, in that first five years when he's still running the show for the first time, he produces The Ruttles, All You Needed Cash, which has a lot of um, SNL people involved in it. He has a, has a movie called Mr. Mike's Mondo Video, which is a, like a comedy anthology film that Michael O'Donoghue made, who was one of the original writers for the show. And that's full of um, SNL writers. And then the first like big star vehicle and the same year that you get the Blues Brothers is uh, Guild Alive, which mm-hmm. is the filmed version of the stage show that Gilda Radner did with Mike Nichols, which... Lorne Michaels also has kind of like a uncredited directorial role in because I think he just mainly because I assuming that he's overseeing how to turn the stage show into uh, into something to be shown in theaters. But that that again it points to your your point about how he clearly had favorites. Like I think uh, everyone would say that Gilda Radner was among his his favorites on the early years of the show. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and although he clearly, I think liked working with um Aykroyd and uh Belushi there's also a sense sometimes from some of their conversations that he also kind of tolerated them a little bit yeah as as someone who didn't um party as hard as they were (laughs) partying Mm. at the time like he was more kind of like yeah well you know it's working on the show so I guess I have to I have to endure it so we'll go on to the the next kind of segment of the show which is the uh 1981 to 1985, which were the years after Lorne left and after the most of the original or maybe the entirety of the original cast left, where... And also, you know, during that period, I think it was also when you have, like, Al Franken in the writer's room and then yeah. he starts to do stuff on camera. Um, but really, intuitively, his career doesn't have much in the way of cinema other than Stuart Saves His Family, which he makes in the 90s. Mm. Um, otherwise, he's just a guy who's pretty much constantly on SNL for years. Uh, until he becomes a senator. Um, oh, God, yes. But uh, 1981 to 1985's kind of notorious period that um, no one uh, speaks particularly highly of, uh, yeah. mainly, uh, or oh, no, in part also because I think those years still haven't been released on any format, because I remember they put out the first five years on DVD years ago, back when things were put out on DVD. Um, <laughs> and... If I remember correctly, and the next five years after that weren't put out on DVD, and now that the show is fairly widely available online, I don't think those episodes are available in their full format. It's very much kind of like, oh, here were the sketches that Lorne thinks are worth saving. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're not going to put everything else because he has such a uh, he has such a grip on it. Um, I'm sure that they're available at like the Paley Center or something if people want to go and spool through them. Yeah, but. Um, they're, they're not that widely available and they're not much liked. But they do produce maybe the biggest star in the history of SNL, which is Eddie Murphy, of course. Of course, 1980. Boom, in he comes, season six. Yeah, 19 years old. Ugh. And on the show for three three seasons kind of full-time and then the fourth one kind of dips in and out because at the same time that he's being this kind of like firecracker that basically saves the show by everyone's accounts like he's the thing that people tune in for and doing these sketches that people are talking about the next day he is also he also has a run where he stars in uh 48 hours trading places and beverly hills cop all while he's still on the show and also puts out delirious his big uh stand-up 
special that you know kind of really establishes him as a huge force in stand-up as well obviously he'd been doing stand-up before but that's kind of the thing that puts him into the conversation of like one of the greats of all time in in stand-up material you know that he discusses aside you know like his uh performance in that one is kind of hard to beat Uh, and yeah again that definitely puts him into the category of like just superstar from there onwards (laughs) leaves the show doesn't come back for 35 years um but you know kind of zooms goes like straight to the moon and doesn't really look back other people from that period um who i like billy crystal joins for a year but i don't think i feel like he can't really be counted yeah he's not he's because he'd already hosted it he was like that's the other that's like the third lane that opens is up opens up uh is people who were already famous for things exactly i think the other major um player is christopher guest though Yes. Um, and that he went on, obviously, to make Spinal Tap and Waiting for Guffman and so many brilliant. And it's interesting that, again, his poor kind of filmmaking technique is improv. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much he kind of took from clashing egos at Saturday Night Live and throwing ideas around and, and how much that went into his work going on. And that he's a filmmaker, right? Like, mm. even though he appears and stuff, he's one of the major writer-directors to have come out of SNL. Yeah, and he is also one of the people who, you know, when you look at some of the people who... You know, there are people who had short stints of the show who still, like, do projects with Lorne in later years. He is one of those people who just, like, he left and he seems to have no interest in ever talking about it or um, has never kind of really fallen back into that sphere. He kind of goes off, does his own thing, works with people who were on SNL, you know, at various points, like Harry Shearer or Michael McKeon. But doesn't really kind of... uh, seem to have any interest in in it is very much kind of like i think he tried <laughs> yeah he seems like just an immensely private person anyway <laughs> yes um but there, there's more of a, a there's more of a consequence from his silence on snl i think <laughs> mm, yeah um the other kind of really big one from this season uh this this run of uh, this five years is martin short who came to yes. the show from sctv and after uh, you know after leaving the show uh is in like three amigos which lord michaels produces uh father of the bride with steve martin who wasn't a cast member but who obviously did the show so much and is so associated with it he he i think kind of is kind of straddles the divide in the sense that he was someone who could headline movies and obviously is much beloved in the comedy community but like he always seemed most comfortable doing things like father of the bride where he gets to show up for a few scenes and do an outrageous accent and just be this this person who's just absolutely uh absolutely wild on screen mm, mm. Uh, and then some other people from this season who like from this this period uh joe piscopo who is not terribly well known in the uk it has to be said um but who you know as was in a couple of movies like Johnny Dangerously and uh, Wise Guys in the 80s and then has kind of gone on to just do lots of uh, other stuff, stand-up and things like that. Gilbert Gottfried, who uh, is obviously like a hugely prolific voiceover artist and does a lot of stuff in stand-up. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who was only on for one season, mm-hmm. is probably the um, archetypal example of someone for whom the show 
was neither help nor hindrance <laughs> to their career. Like it didn't propel her to stardom. You know that that came with Seinfeld, obviously, but really kind of um, uh, also it, it didn't kind of like overshadow her in the way that the show can overshadow some people. Yeah, it can really like suck people up and chew them right up and then spit them out. It's really strange, like thinking about people who are only on it for like a season here or there and the stories that kind of get generated around that. Like, as you say, as we were talking about uh, Tarankle and earlier, like a ceremonious or unceremonious departure for people. And just looking at season 11, that's the thing that's so remarkable. I'm like, how did I forget that in the same cast, there was Anthony Michael Hall, Joan Cusack and Robert Downey Jr. They had Iron mm. Man, for fuck's sake. Like, and uh, Randy Quaid yeah. <laughs> that season as well. That was very much the the year where they just hired a bunch of people who were already famous because that was the year that uh, Lorne came back and kind of wanted to rebuild the show after five years of it not particularly working um and uh rdj and anthony michael hall had both already done like uh weird science and breakfast club came out the year before so they were both kind of hot hot stuff and were very much kind of like okay like we're gonna hire these guys because people love them from the work they're doing in films um and i don't think any of them lasted more than a year yeah (laughs) um but joan cusack i think is is really interesting in the sense that like I didn't realise until doing the research for this that she was on the show. Mm. But so much of her career makes sense if you think that she was someone with that kind of a background because she has such a versatility to her, which I think is like if you're looking at, you know, kind of connecting threads between a lot of these, uh, the people who were on SNL and didn't necessarily become like huge stars, but who, you know, went on to do like, have like a, a good career in character roles and supporting roles is like the clearly the 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 high pressure uh world of having to do a live sketch show every week where you're writing it as you go along and you're kind of performing it and rehearsing it in very short notice gives you a lot of tools that i think are probably really really conducive to you then becoming like someone that people can just slot into any movie and be like like someone like a Joan Cusack in in very short order after leaving the show does broadcast news and married to the mob and working girl and Adam's family's values which are all very different roles for her for sure and she has that range that reading life from New York and also let's not forget like how much that we sort of learn by inference sometimes a bit on the nose sometimes a bit more subtle from 30 rock in terms mm-hmm. of the actual process of the thing. If you have someone who has range, who can be, like Joan Cusack, incredibly manic or really quite quiet and yeah. can be kind of creepy, but also like the straight face person in the sketch, you have so much more to play with as a writer. And when you are essentially writing, generating that much material with such a present deadline, anyone who has something remarkable but also something really versatile about them Mm. they will they will do well and i think that's the mark of a lot of people who've cut their teeth on snl and then have gone on to be seen as actors rather than comedians Mm. there does seem to be a lot a lot of that 
Yeah. Uh, and also, before we delve too far into the next segment, which is uh, 86 to 90, probably should also just mention, because we were talking about people who were kind of chewed up by the show, uh, Charles Rocket, who I think is probably one of the, the kind of the real tragic stories of the show. Someone who was on the show for a year, was fired at, either at the end of the season or even just partway through the season, and then, you know, never really was able to work consistently in the years since and and ultimately uh, took his own life in in 2005 and was always kind of viewed as someone who was really kind of like broken up by you know having this like one this like shot at being on one of the most talked about and uh, uh, beloved institutions of American comedy and and getting kicked off of it Mm, yeah also in the 86 to 90 era, you have someone like a John Lovitz who very much falls into the uh, the category of people who are just like really solid supporting actors. Uh, workaholics will pretty much take up on any role, including, as I discovered in my research, voicing a dog in a forthcoming movie called uh, Agent Toby Barks, where he <laughs> plays is uh, a talking dog who is a, a spy. And... Um, as I said on Twitter, the fact that it's a pun on Agent Cody Banks, a movie that came out 17 years ago, is far and away the most baffling part of that whole premise. But yeah, he is someone who, you know, I always enjoy because he just like shows up and he's always such a lively, enjoyable presence. He's always fun whenever he shows up voicing, voicing characters on The Simpsons. Uh, he's great in The Critic. He's very much oh, one of those right. people who, when he shows up, you're like, oh yeah, this guy, this guy's great. And was in the most recent episode of SNL, mm, playing yeah. Trump's Trump's lawyer, who goes goes to meet his biggest fan, Satan. <laughs> yeah, which uh, I think also is uh, that I think was like the first time he'd been on the show in quite a while. I feel like he was one of those people who had a really bad falling out with Lorn. Um, I think I want to say that he was like not invited to some anniversary thing or something, and he took a like real offense at it. Mm. Which is which is a shame because I do feel like he's like really terrific, and he was one of those people who just stayed on the show for like years and years and years, and was just like a really dependable presence. Yeah. Also during that period, another dependable presence, Phil Hartman, who um, starts during this period and is on the show for like years and years and years, but goes on to have great success voicing characters on The Simpsons, being in things like uh, Fletch Lives and Quick Change. Uh, starring in news radio and oddly influential sitcom uh, in the sense that one of the former stars just endorsed Bernie Sanders for president (laughs) has like this he's like very like everyone called him the glue because he was the guy that really held sketches together but he really is like the embodiment of that idea of someone who was never going to become like a star in the sense of like oh people will go and watch a Phil Harmon movie but who you know had he lived would have just been cast in things forever and ever because people loved working with him and he had that real... A, he had a great voice, which, you know, people can always find use for, but who, again, has that versatility where you can just slot him into anything and he'll make it work. Yeah. And then also, uh, like, uh, Damon Wayans was on the show during this period, although he basically didn't really do much. He was only on a few episodes. Very much an example of someone, again, like a Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who... Uh, did not really need the show <laughs> because he just went on to do his own thing. Um, but obviously the association, you know, does lend a certain prestige, I guess, to anyone who has it, even if they're only on for a brief period of time. Yeah. Um, and then during that period, you also have um, two of the big stars who came to define the show in the early 90s, uh, Mike Myers and Dana Carvey. Yes. 
uh, who, you know, went on to careers in their own right, um, but who I feel like are most notable in terms of the films of SNL for starring in uh, probably the best SNL spin-off film, in my opinion, Wayne's World, and uh, the second best Wayne's World too. <laughs> Hard agree, Ed. Hard agree. It's amazing that Wayne's World works so well as a film. I think kind of what we were talking about earlier in terms of Blues Brothers, like it's quite a weird premise Mm. like blues brothers is a very strange premise but because it just leans into this like joyous madcap a a heist on the side of good and it and its characters actually believe in what they're doing so there's stakes and a good heart to all of this sort of slapstick and absurdity and absolutely banging soundtrack again i think music is quite important because snl is always it's not just the host, it's the musical guest as well. Mm. So it's funny that like I think some of the better SNL films from from characters do actually have an element of music to them. But Wayne's World in particular. And I think something that's amazing about Wayne's World is that, you know, the idea of like two guys who have cable access television show that they broadcast from the basement now the idea of that fills me with dread because it would be <laughs> it would be a youtube series and it would pro- they probably be men's rights activists but in the early 90s <laughs> that's just there's just something so wholesome and there's so many elements of wayne's world that are just brilliant like the fact that it's almost like a love letter to television mm. and the, the kind of like the early democracy of that in like local local access and you know they they're so invested in what they're doing, even though like who's actually watching Wayne's world within the universe of Wayne's world. Right. I don't, I don't mm. understand. Um, well, Rob Lowe's girlfriend is, of course, you know that much. <laughs> of course. Um, and if you're going to have a viewer, <laughs> better be that viewer, but that they are essentially uncool and a bit out of time. Like mm. they're really sweet, but they're not hip. And yeah. there's something about their unbridled joy that is so engaging and similar to Bill and Ted, right? There's there's kind of that, even though they're not played for being dumb as much. Um, and that Wayne addresses the camera the whole time because he did in SNL, you know, there's that like no fourth wall. It's just such, it's the best adaptation because you would not watch Wayne's World as a sketch and think that's going to make an amazing film because it's one location for a start. But mm-hmm. because they give them such a plausible, brilliant plot, and that the irony is, is that Wayne's World is all about like getting big and selling out and like leaving your basement where you have your show with your best friend, and yet it says, you know, oh, never mind all of that kind of like exposure and product placement and fame like really it's for the love of it and you're like yeah but lord michael's produced it (laughs) because he knows because he knows what sells um but it remains a really i think it's such a gorgeous film because it's not mean because Mm. they are so sweet there is a complete lack of that kind of snideness to it yeah and i think it also like you were saying about the the thinness of the premise of the sketch also really does free them up to do like 
more or less anything they want in it. Like, yeah, the, you know, when Garth's like under the table and he's like saying, do you, do you remember that Twilight Zone episode? And he describes a non-existent Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> it's like, it's got nothing to do with the plot of the movie in that moment. It's just like, what would be a funny thing for Garth to say at this moment? Or yeah. the, uh, the bit where they're making fun of product placement in movies which uh, is is just really, really wonderful. Robert Patrick showing up as the Terminator, as the T-1000. Oh. Um. Because the thing that works about Wayne's World is that they treated it like an actual film, but mm-hmm. they have punchlines and scenarios and quirky little bursts like sketches, but it's yeah. not sketch after sketch after sketch after sketch, which yeah. some uh, particularly modern films are particularly guilty of Ghostbusters Mm -hmm. it is an it is its own film and and that's what it's a great film regardless of where it even though it's source material I still really really like they treated it like a film and that's why it's one of the best ones like pretty much the best one Mm, and I think that's also why like for me I mean I watched that film for the first time when I was like six or seven because we had it on video. I think my my parents had gone to see it at the cinema and they're like, oh, this is really funny, and bought it on video. And then I just watched that and the first one over and over again. Didn't really understand a lot of the jokes. Uh, I remember the second one, watching the second one and just turning to my mum and saying, what's pubes? <laughs> um, which is great, wonderful conversation that a parent would have to have with their child. But um, it, it very much was something that I just really loved the, the the silliness of it and how funny it was and just having no concept of this is a thing based on a thing. It's just this thing really exists as its own object. And the, the Blues Brothers has this uh, as well, even though I don't enjoy it as much as, as the Wayne's World movies. Like, it just feels like, oh, this is a thing that exists separately from the show, even though it has a basis in it. Like, it does really feel like a movie and a sequel as well. They they feel like movies that exist in their own right. And I think also they both benefit from having really fun, big casts who all get given something fun to do. Like I always feel about um, Ed O'Neill running the shop, uh, running like the diner and just having that little monologue where he's just saying, why do they come to me to die? <laughs> why do they come to me to die? which is just like such a really funny weird little side thing and again that that speaks to the reflexiveness of the premise or like opening a door to just a room full of ninjas like there's just so much stuff in that movie yeah but yeah wayne's world check it out um (laughs) before we move on to the the next period also during that that era you have uh kevin nealon uh who is someone who again falls into the the category of someone who just like never really becomes a star they didn't do like a hans and franz movie thankfully that would have just been uh interminable um but who works fairly constantly in in the following years but i think also emerges as one of the the first examples of the kind of like the third major group of snl stars which is uh, adam sandler guys <laughs> which is just guys who work constantly in adam sandler movies mm-hmm. um uh, who, of course, then joins the show very, very soon into 1991, uh, which marks our next period, which is uh, 91 to 2000, uh, a period when you have uh, Chris Farley, who uh, joins and is very much someone who 
obviously you know passes away very young but when he's on the show becomes a huge star in things like and and is a, a lead in things like black sheep tommy boy and beverly hills which uh, beverly hills ninja which he co-stars in with david spade who uh also kind of like has a bit of a run as a leading man but mainly becomes a, a supporting guy in sitcoms chris rock who is in like a bunch of movies but mainly becomes famous after leaving the show as a stand-up rob schneider again just a a, a sandler guy really <laughs> um mm. like there, there's this like that whole early 90s bunch of people who are in like supporting roles like a lot of them just kind of become part of the happy madison kind of broader universe of guys who particularly in the case of rob schneider like sandler ends up producing a lot of his movies but who you know just get cast in a lot of his his projects because he clearly really loved hanging out with them and working with them during the the years that he was on the show Mm. but yeah sandler is probably like the most notable name to emerge from from that period in terms of just being someone who is successful on the show does a bunch of sketches and characters that kind of resonate with people and he becomes you know a favorite of an entire generation of people who watch the show and then after leaving under fairly you know acrimonious terms like this is the um the period of saturday night dead you know that famous Mm. article in i want to say rolling stone yeah maybe that is all about how the show's like moribund and the ratings are not great and that the reviews are bad and you know that whole slate of people end up being kicked off the show but then pretty much immediately turns it around as it is in billy madison and happy gilmore and then you know for the next 10 15 years or so is just one of the biggest comedy stars in america yeah Uh, and again i would say as an actor he's got that range as well in terms mm. of punch drunk love in particular was when everyone really sat up and took notice of like, yeah. oh, he's not just mumbling and making maybe some questionable off-colour jokes um, or kind of zany premises for uh, for comic films. And yeah, I still haven't seen Uncut, Gem- uh, Uncut Gems yet, Ed, and I can't wait. He's so good. Should have uh, been nominated. Uh, and, then, and then the same year that he made Murder Mystery with... <laughs> Jennifer Aniston on Netflix, you know, like also should have been nominated. Also should have been nominated. <laughs> Man's got range. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think he is a he is a very interesting uh, figure because I think everyone always talks about his work on SNL. Like his whole thing was he would just do very simple characters, yeah, which is you know opera man, like the British just <laughs> thing man. Like he's not really <laughs> yeah. interested in like he's very much of the school of like you know it's it's a silly sketch we're just going to kind of do a very simple thing it's not going to get too complicated yeah and then when he goes into movies i think that approach does kind of carry over a little bit in that his movies are often with the exception of something like don't mess with the zohan which is incredibly high concept yeah or click or click which is also very high concept yeah. like they're all very kind of like they're more kind of like low concept sort of thing it's like Big Daddy, Adam Sandler has a kid now and he's got to kind of look after this kid. You know, like there's not a huge amount necessarily driving it other than, you know, the, that central premise and a lot of what makes those movies work, I think, just comes from something inherently likable about him as a person and kind of like this really laid back vibe that he gives off. Uh, and which then also 
it does does work in those high concept movies because there is something really interesting about seeing someone like Adam Sandler be in Click, where like, oh, you now have like control of the universe. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. Also, during this period, you have um, Tim Meadows who uh, headlines The Ladies Man, one of the the later SNL spin-off movies that uh, doesn't work particularly well, doesn't uh, do particularly well at the box office or critically, and I think really points to the problem of some of these movies just taking like, okay, what was the premise of the sketch? How do we stretch it out to an entire movie? And the 90s is like when those really uh, increase in frequency uh, in the wake of the success of the Wayne's World movies, which, you know, you get Coneheads, which is exactly the same sort of premise, but with a not even current SNL <laughs> sketch. Yeah. Uh, one from the early days of the show that they kind of dust off again. Uh, also, you have It's Pat, a movie so uh, disliked and so unsuccessful that it was pulled from theatres after a single week. Uh, and also, as far as I could tell, is the only SNL spinoff that Lorne Michaels did not produce. Yes. Which uh, <laughs> says a lot. You also have uh, Superstar, starring uh, Molly Shannon and Will Ferrell, who are kind of like two of the... Certainly Will Ferrell is one of the biggest breakout stars of that era. And I guess I think there's one more. Oh, and Stuart Saves His Family, which is like one of the more well-liked of them, but is also one of the ones that's more just kind of like, this character was a family counselling kind of character sketch on SNL what if we have him trying to fix his own family and it's more just kind of a dramedy than it is like these other ones where they're like oh Night at the Roxbury that's the other one um yeah. <laughs> where, where you know these one note characters that they try and stretch out to a single movie to a full movie yeah I don't know what the thought process of that is and I think it's interesting how they even vet for that because what I guess you're all sitting in the you're sitting in studio 8h and it goes well and you're like let's do this for, for film these particular sketches that this one audience like there's there's test driving stuff and seeing that it works with a certain group of people but then that's a massive format format change that's a massive switch and it's not like now for example where so much of snl's content is uploaded onto youtube that people from around the world can watch it and you're like ah oh, well look we've got this many views there's an interest in this ip <laughs> this is mm. a basis so i don't understand why they're like yeah let's take the batami brothers and just spend hours with them rather than a couple of minutes it seems to be i think an outgrowth of the underlying philosophy of snl in the 90s and through until like the late 2000s of if a thing works just keep doing it yeah which is that's the period when it becomes really notorious for taking characters and cramming them in to every episode that they can or you know a actor really pops so let's you know highlight them at the expense of everyone else in the cast which i think was less of a problem in the early years just because the casts were smaller like mm. during the first first five years the cast's like seven or eight people so it's hard to really uh overwork one particular character actor because they'll they'll just collapse of exhaustion so everyone gets a bit of a showcase when the cast is like 12 to 15 people then that's when you start to notice it's like oh they're you know they're really highlighting 
uh, Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan at this point, or they're really highlighting Will, uh, Jimmy Fallon or whatever. And I feel like that philosophy then just kind of stretches out. It's like, okay, let's not just like run these characters into the ground in uh, you know, 12 sketches over the course of 20 episodes in a season. Let's also have them be the the centerpiece of a 90-minute movie. And uh, I think in both cases, the same central flaw kind of comes through, which is that those sketches are often really funny the first time you see them and, like, for the four or five minutes that they run. And then, unless it's something like, like you know, Blues Brothers and Wayne's World, where really and truthfully the sketch is just that the appeal of the sketch is just the interaction between the actors and there's no kind of, there's not really much of a bit to it. Yeah. Whereas I feel like that's the problem with like neither Roxbury is like the bit of the characters, these two brothers hanging out in a club together with what is love playing and just kind of like being rejected. <laughs> and like, yeah. that's kind of it trying to stretch that out to 90 minutes becomes a bit of a problem. Yeah. Uh, also during this uh, period, uh, we mentioned him earlier, Michael McKean joined the show for like a season or two, but obviously he was already very famous from other things. Um, Sarah Silverman's on for a year, but again, very much in the category of someone who uh, didn't really need the show to succeed and ultimately didn't have a lot of work on the show. Uh, as highlighted, I think when she came back to host at one point and they showed like one of her old sketches and it literally was... I think pretty much the only thing she ever appeared on camera was like as a, a audience member asking a question, you know, when they do that bit. Uh, similarly, Jean Garofalo also uh, only on for a season and by all accounts didn't really enjoy it. And yeah, I think probably probably the biggest stars to emerge from like the latter half of the 90s really are Will Ferrell, um, who I think has really demonstrated tremendous staying power over certainly since he really kind of like broke through with uh anchorman and old school yeah. um, and i think he's also someone who even though i think that there is definitely a will ferrell type of character and you can definitely see he occasionally will just kind of like fall back on certain ticks is someone who i think is just so good at that one thing that he's very good at and is so good at just kind of putting little twists on it that it still more or less works. And then the other one, of course, is uh, Jimmy Fallon, who doesn't, who has a bit of a, a bit of a run of starring in movies in the like early two thousands, where he's doing things like um, Taxi and Fever Pitch, where they try and make him a star. Is pretty much now just like, you know, he's just uh, the Tonight Show, and that's pretty much what he's uh, famous for. But again working on the show for a long time probably does give you a lot of skills that allow you to have the versatility needed to host a late night talk show and to kind of like bounce off of people and do sketches and game shows and uh, and uh, kind of like party games and all the stuff that he does and mm. uh, normalizing fascism um <laughs> all of the skills that are really important yes. um but yeah like will ferrell i feel is like if you were to look at the, the certainly in the years since then he feels like the last person to emerge from the show who was like a real bona fide like superstar yes i have to agree which is a shame because i i mean obviously from that era we've got you know tina fey sort of starts to come mm -hmm. in as well and i'd say that it was really kind of coming back to snl that was when she started to really i don't know like like tracking her superstardom because i would say that she is 
probably on a similar level to Will Ferrell, she just hasn't taken as many projects film-wise. And I think that's the only difference between them in that, you know, the stuff that she's, I think she's chosen her projects very carefully and has been doing other stuff and, you know, 30 Rock and then Mean Girls and then, you know, Sisters. I mean, Baby Mama was a bit of a, you know, not great. Fairly big hit though. Yeah. Which I think was like, that was that that was her first like other than Mean Girls, which obviously she wrote and had a small part in, that was the first case of her really headlining a movie. Absolutely. And it really worked her her and Amy Poehler both headlining a movie and it being a really big success. For sure. But you're right, I think I think just because Will Ferrell works relentlessly mm. like and and everyone seems to want to cast him whereas because i don't think he's got the same like authorship that tina fey no. has yeah he's not necessarily generating projects in the same way he certainly has like you know obviously his his early work with adam mckay there was a sort of clearly a real strong working relationship between them in terms of like adam mckay really kind of like putting structure to ideas that they would come up with together. And that, mm. that's what you see in obviously Anchorman and Step Brothers and Talladega Nights. And that relationship, I think, was the thing that was really important to him becoming the star that he is because his roles, apart from Adam McKay's work, you know, he has been in a bunch of movies that have done well, but those feel like the ones that really capture the anarchic spirit that he clearly really thrives from. Yeah. from his his improv background of where you're watching something and you're very clearly this is obviously most true in uh anchorman because they created a whole second movie just from outtakes of the first movie but like there is that real sense that even though there is a spine to the movie and the the plot is kind of wafer thin at best um the the fun of it is from seeing these uh actors bounce off of each other in that way mm. Uh, also during that period there's a lot of really funny people who go on to like long successful careers but never quite become you know the star stars in the same way so someone like an Anna Gasteyer who is just kind of consistently great in everything she does but is very much of the you know is very much character actor uh Maya Rudolph as well Rachel Dratch uh Horatio Sands uh despite also being in one of the worst films I've ever seen Boat Trip um <laughs> Uh, he's definitely someone who kind of like does SNL for years and years. He's like a very, um, is a consummate professional, you know, obviously someone who fits that role well and works well with those and those sketches and then takes that experience to go and just be working constantly in the years ahead, but never really has much really in the way of a film career. But, mm. you know, when you hear him talk about podcasts about his career, he seems very happy with that. <laughs> he seems to be in a very happy place in his career as a result. Jay Moore as well, who mm. was on the show for a little while, um, was fired, I believe, over plagiarism. Uh, that was kind of like a big part in him stealing sketches. I'm just tutting. But goes on to, you know, be in a bunch of... It goes on to huge success in Jerry Maguire, in which he has a supporting role and was probably the biggest film of his career, and then kind of fades out a little bit with Suicide Kings and Jane Austen's Mafia, a movie I watched a lot as a kid because um, <laughs> I was not very discerning but is uh you know like then he you know kind of goes on and stars in sitcoms and dramedies that try and try and make him a thing but it doesn't quite 
quite come together. And then, yeah, uh, Tracy Morgan, of course, during that period as well, who worked in a, in a bunch of things and obviously ha- has a handful of lead roles and things like Cop Out, where he's in the, the co-lead with uh, Bruce Willis. But again, like like Tina Fey is really defined by 30 Rock. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to the 2000-2010 period now, which we, again, Tina Fey, we talked about her a little bit, but that is very much, I think this is where you start to see a bit of a shift where, which becomes more and more pronounced uh, the closer to the modern day we get, oh, where wow. the uh, people on 30 Rock don't necessarily start to treat it as a jumping off point to be in movies some of them do you know star in movies or uh, get uh you know work a lot in supporting roles but there's a sense suddenly that like oh this isn't necessarily a great jumping off point to uh try and become a film star it's maybe a better way uh, forward is to star in or create your own tv show yeah uh, and she's kind of like the first massive success of that of someone who goes from Starring, being the the head writer on SNL and from hosting Weekend Update to writing uh, Mean Girls, which is obviously a, a decent size success, but then creating 30 Rock, which becomes one of the most beloved and acclaimed sitcoms of the uh, of the 2000s and is uh, produced by Lorne. And I think kind of in the same way that Wayne's World ushered in, you know, a whole decade of attempts to recreate the success of that with these uh, those movies that we mentioned 30 rock feels like the point at which lorne michaels really starts to ramp up his production of sitcoms based around people who worked on snl i don't know off the top of my head when the um snl contracts the much discussed contract where you know you sign for seven years but you have to do a sitcom that uh, Lawn offers you if he offers you and if it gets picked up you're then signed in to you know do the sitcom as long as it runs but it seems like maybe that came into effect in this period because that's when you start to see a lot more of those sort of shows cropping up yeah and I wonder how much of uh, his well 30 Rock I wonder how much of it was damage control <laughs> like mm. I mean Tina's one of his favorites and so maybe she's probably the only person who can sort of get away with jibing him yeah yeah uh and also like it's interesting that she went on to uh to do that because i think there well you know there's often talk about what will happen to the show when lawn eventually decides to step away and i think she at various points people have talked about her maybe being the one who would step up to do it but i think that talk pretty much ended once she had like huge success on her own and it became apparent that maybe she didn't need snl in the same way that SNL really sort of needed her. It's the, that weird yeah. beast, isn't it? Where sometimes it's kind of not so much biting the hand that feeds you, but the hand comes back and says, can you give me back that food? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amy Poehler, of course, during that period as well. Again, someone who had some success in movies, Mean Girls, Baby Mama, um, Sisters later, or which was her uh, re- reunion with Tina Fey, but who's and uh, voicing the main character in Inside Out, but whose main success, you know, in after leaving the show was Parks and Recreation, which wasn't produced by Lorne Michaels, but there was this definite sense of like, oh, that's that is the direction that people start to go into is looking into 
leaving SNL to go and star in uh, a sitcom that may or may not be created by Mike Shaw, because that's yes. happened a few times. Yeah. And being able to have that, like, memorable character presence. Like, I think the amazing thing about the optics of SNL, there's lots of very attractive people on it, but everyone's mm. just really distinctive. They're not yes. kind of classically cookie cutter everyone's instantly recognizable and yet they can through a range of like impressions and the phenomenal like hair and costume department can look very different or somehow be more like the people they're being characters of the caricatures of than than the people themselves i think mm. what's also um really pertinent about this era kind of as we're coming into the mid 2000s is like not only have we got people like um seth myers fred armison andy sandberg Jason Sudeikis come in but I think it's also the cast where we have the two people who I find so fascinating in terms of their careers like all of their work and and renowned on SNL for being particularly gifable um mm-hmm. Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig I, th- yeah. I think they would both be considered actors in their own right now like particularly with Bill Hader and Barry as well established I adore um mm-hmm. but being like and them being in a lot of stuff together or yes. at least like the skeleton twins being which is i s- still think a really overlooked and underappreciated neat little indie um yeah. but that they both kind of i mean Kristen wig Moore just had this like burst of being in lots of low budget indie films that had kind of quirky premises but she was essentially playing really quite dark dramatic roles um yes and then bill hader being like hey i'm in train wreck i'm a <laughs> i'm a comedy uh i'm in a i'm in a rom a rom a romedy comedy i'm in a romedy comedy as the romantic lead and i'm doing really well um but yeah i'd say those are two people that you wouldn't be surprised to see acting seriously in or doing doing you know what i mean by acting seriously like yeah taking on more like less over the top less obviously comedic roles exactly and being in this being in a very different pile of headshots in an agent's mm-hmm. office compared to someone like will forte and my rudolph as well is really interesting i mean it's funny because i feel like because she's from like a a famous performing sort of family it mm-hmm. feels a little bit less like she was some kind of like unknown plucked from absolute obscurity yeah and she was sort of acting as well around things and being the partner of paul thomas anderson i think her relationship to film is really interesting but that she's so key in bridesmaids as well like and that i think is Kristen wiggs like breakout film even though she you know pops up and stuff like knocked up and anchorman like that you know the breakthrough moment of having that lead role in helming a film, basically. Yeah, and, you know, coming away with an Oscar nomination for it as well. Yeah. Which really feels like a big breakthrough moment for her. I think that was that was definitely, again, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Saturday Night Live, viewing it from a British perspective, is that, you know, you would often, certainly in my experience, like you'd often hear about SNL and you hear, oh, this person was on Saturday Night Live or whatever, but you wouldn't really necessarily be able to see it in like the pre-internet era yeah. where 
sketches would go viral and like certainly in 2008 like everyone was watching tina fey play sarah palin there was less of a sense of like what saturday night live is you just kind of knew it by the fact that it constantly was talked about in terms of these actors who were in big films like um will ferrell to me before i discovered that he was someone who had been on snl it just kind of suddenly seemed like he was this guy who appeared out of nowhere but was suddenly massively yeah suddenly massively famous yeah totally ubiquitous it's it's really funny you say that like in terms of what we have had before snl really properly going online and having that global immediacy and familiarity what we sort of inherited or what was kind of exported to us you're right is mainly through these films or tv really like the simpsons making fun of it a lot yes because they had lots of former snl writers who (laughs) worked on it and they would have like you know um crusty doing the uh mad about shoe uh you're not gonna like our nypd shoe sketch and then having like a mock-up of the crusty logo but as like a saturday night live mid 90s like uh you know transition screen <laughs> like that was that was my main knowledge of what snl was was people making fun of it <laughs> uh and then occasionally hearing that someone apparently was a big star because of it yeah i think one of the things that's also interesting about this period and, and this kind of gets to i guess the thesis statement of how snl stopped being having quite such a close relationship to film um, is this is the period when you see the last SNL movie, the last movie based on a character, which is MacGruber, um, starring Will Forte and with a bunch of uh, bunch of SNL alumni starring in it. Uh, obviously, Kristen Wiig and has a major supporting role in it, uh, part in it. Uh, Maya Rudolph shows up as a ghost who gets fucked on a grave, <laughs> a gravestone, and there's a bunch of really like really. Uh, great funny people in it and i think it's a hugely enjoyable it's a very silly movie but also it was a huge flop Um, i remember going to watch it and on opening weekend because i happened to be over in america visiting when it opened and at the start there were like seven people in the theater and by the end it was just two um there was definitely this (laughs) sense that it was not something that a lot of people liked and it really seemed, even though I think it works perfectly well as a comedy and it's hugely enjoyable, like it definitely points to the limits of the SNL sketch as source for a movie. And that's the point at which like they really stop trying to directly make that connection. It starts to become more a case of like, oh, you know, Lawn starts producing a lot of TV projects that people who worked on the show uh also go on to make or just like people increasingly like when they leave the show just like just become really prolific and working in lots of other different areas like if you look at uh fred armison's credits for example like he obviously worked on the show for quite a long period of time and he it wasn't like he was only on snl during that time he has lots of credits during the years that he was on snl but then in the years since then his credits just like explode he suddenly becomes someone who is everywhere and it uh, increasingly becomes just like almost like uh you know national service or whatever because a thing that you do in order um, to you know get support to go to university or something <laughs> like it will be a thing that really bolsters your credentials in order to go on to do other things 
I think that's how people see it now, particularly, yeah. and that's what Don't Think Twice really looks into a lot or, or infers a lot about, like, and I'm not sure, ex- I'm not sure exactly when it properly shifted because, like we've said, like in terms of the films, not not hugely successful. It's not, mm. it, you know, it's not a litany of. We're not embarrassed by riches with it, um, mainly just embarrassed. But I think it's more that lucrative TV conversion. And also it's a bit like the president. For the majority of people, SNL, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, is something you're always known for. Because that level Mm. of exposure, the kind of constant, frequent exposure, is something else. And I think because it's now essentially global mm. and and it's and it's that thanks to Akiva Schaefer who I think is an absolute genius one third of the lonely island because he was writing when Sandberg uh, came in it was just the two of them rather than like it's funny because Jorma Dacconi didn't seem to have any sort of like direct SNL experience himself um but Akiva Schaefer was writing but then he basically I mean, I don't, it's not well, it's not clear as to whether he came up just himself with the idea for digital shorts, but it was definitely like going to Lawn and being like, look, there's this thing called the internet and we need to be on it. Um, mm-hmm. I I have I bring tales. I've had great success there. And for him, essentially, also making like some of the best, most memorable digital shorts that still work today. Like, yeah. So 15 years down the line, which is terrifying. I I think, you know what? I'll go I'll go out on a limb here, Ed. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Akiva Schaefer takes over mm. eventually, because yeah. I think he's got, you know, a really good sensibility, and it's that vision. That's the thing. It's not necessarily like, are you a great writer? Are you a great performer? Like Schaefer's got that understanding of the landscape in a way that I'm not sure many other people would like he's got a bit more of the like producing credentials i think or like the skills mm. of that but yeah i think if it weren't for sandberg and schaefer again saturday night dead <laughs> deader <laughs> saturday night dead volume two because they did just inject it with so much life and give it the longevity that and the relevance not just mm. in terms of content but in terms of format yeah because i think it's also interesting when you consider that like they were they came to define the show at the same time that you know Kristen Wiig was on the show and was becoming the breakout star from the main cast you know she was the one who had all of the characters that kept being brought back who was being very much posited as you know the person who's going to go on to great things from the show and she has obviously gone on to do a lot of really wonderful work since leaving um but Andy Samberg and the and uh Jorma and Akiva all left at the same time that she did and their final episode I thought I think makes for an interesting contrast because you know she her exit from the show is being serenaded by Mick Jagger singing she's like a rainbow and Lorne comes out and kind of like hugs her and it's this kind of like big emotional thing it's very very sweet but their thing is like they did a follow-up to Lazy Sunday which ends with Andy Samberg being like, you know, saying this is how I'm going to finish it and like leaving. And that's the end of it. And I think at the time it wasn't even announced that it was their last one, but there's this like real sense of finality to it. And it's really interesting that, you know, they were seen as like 
this thing that was just happening off to the side and she was the big star but as the years have passed you do really get this sense of like oh like no they were as important to that show if not more important than uh she was in the sense that they really redefined what the show could do where she was just like the latest really uh, successful example of what the show had always been doing which is you know creating characters that you can run into the ground the latest shiny jewel exactly and it's interesting looking at like the lonely islands film output like because hot rod wasn't like specifically theirs but they all ended up being involved with it and it was produced by lawn so it's kind of got that connection exactly so like and it's because it's not an snl character but it but it has I mean, this is the question. It all gets very ship of Theseus. <laughs> it's mm. like, what? when is an SNL film not an SNL film? So yeah, and I feel like that they couldn't quite break out. Like there's some really lovely, mad, absurd moments that feels very much their own in Hot Rod, but it also feels like it could have been a Will Ferrell vehicle. Like it's very Step Brothers-y. And again, that's not a slight, that's just an observation. Like that's more how it is in tone. And then... Um, of course, uh, the greatest film ever made, pop star, never stop, never stopping. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think, again, even though it has so many brilliant SNL people in it, like Tim Meadows, I think is absolutely mm-hmm. class as Tony. Um, yep. But and then it's interesting because Chris Red is in it before he becomes a cast member. Um, That's so, right. Yeah. So you get to see like all of the machinations of general sort of like comedy circles and like Second City and Groundlings and UCB and. It's all kind of like churning in on itself. I mean, I keep using these words, beer moth, juggernaut. It is like it's it's such a kind of suck of the entire comedy ecosystem in America. And yeah. back to a bit like for the rest of us. Oh, God, it's such a infernal and profane and yet sacred machine. Ed, I can never get my head around it. Yeah, I think you also see that in like how... Not only is it like the so many people's careers have been shaped by it and defined by it, but it almost feels like if anyone is operating in the arena of sketch comedy, like you have to be defined either by are you going for what SNL is doing or are you defining yourself against it? Completely. Like, Completely. That's that's why like Mr. Show, I think, is so great. Yeah. Is like it's a show that is clearly being posited as we're gonna do the exact opposite of what SNL are doing. We're gonna be doing sketches that are really kind of considered and you know, we're gonna spend a lot of time thinking about how they fit together, maybe too much time, and we're gonna kill ourselves over writing these transitions mm-hmm. that take far longer to write than the actual sketches. And you know, Bob Odenkirk worked on Saturday yeah. Night Live as a writer in the like late 80s early 90s and he very clearly was shaped by that experience and like even though i'm sure he probably had a a great time doing it he definitely seemed to come away from it thinking okay i want to do the opposite of that in my (laughs) show (laughs) i want to do something that is totally different and i think that is true also in something like kids in the hall which was (laughs) ironically produced by lorne michaels um (laughs) But that is very much like a show that is operating in an entirely different approach and register to what they're doing. And that's kind of like the the immensity of Saturday Night Live is that not only does it shape the people who are involved in it, but it shapes the people who have no interest in it. Completely. Or it gives a massive opportunity because it does really kind of suck up the mainstream 
or it is the mainstream and yet it manages to be there's little moments of absurdity and complete ridiculousness but mm. but really it's it's staking a massive territory but like you say i think bob odenkirk is a really good example because yeah he created like matt foley with chris farley and that feels you can tell that's a that's a bob odenkirk in there somewhere i think that really comes across <laughs> his general tone and a lot of shouting and and yeah. uh, things things breaking and, and when he says my little women that's also it, like a big important thing yeah 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 exactly exactly um huh, it all comes around but it's that thing of like yeah done that what next and it doesn't have to be a departure or a kind of two fingers up it is just mm. like oh i know how to do that now maybe i'll do something completely different and like on a smaller scale like thinking about john mulaney and even though he hasn't really gone into films the fact that his sitcom you know he, he must have signed that contract but that did not go well <laughs> yeah and yet he's worked really hard and that like I keep forgetting that that even happened because I'm so obsessed mm. with the sack lunch bunch and his recent stand-up specials, but also that he went back to SNL. And I think what's so fun is that at host, he was like, well, actually I'm going to brush off these sketches that I, that got rejected and I want to mm. do them. And we're now at the stage where it's not so much the writers becoming performers. It's that the writers are going off to become performers and write other stuff and then come back like the fact that it's this self-replicating organism is uh there's just nothing else like it yeah and i think um if you you know if we look at the last 10 years also um we should probably mention jenny slate of course as well of who course. comes from this period who uh famously you know was only on for one season said the f word live on 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 air and wasn't necessarily fired because of that but it didn't seem to help Mm -hmm. um and who uh, you know spoke very honestly about how kind of painful that whole situation was for her but has really come through and become like this really exciting performer obviously she's wonderful in obvious child really good in um, Landline also by Gillian Rome Spear and has, you know, weirdly, you know, went on to be in Venom in a small role, has done lots of really good voiceover work, most notably in Big Mouth and Lego Batman, very much someone who uh, did not allow SNL to define her really either in terms of it being like the first thing people think of her for because she wasn't on it for that long, but also like not allowing the fact that she was fired from the show be like the epitaph of her career you know she's been someone who has just consistently continued working and making and finding opportunities for herself yeah and and just in in uh looking at 2011 to 2020 to today it's it's really interesting because like you know i have my list here of all of the actors who have been on snl and like got some of their notable film roles and then you get to like some of the more recent cast members and really you're looking at maybe one or two film roles so like someone like a vanessa bayer who was in train wreck and office christmas party but has mainly gone on to do tv paul britton who i forgot was on the show and has pretty much just done voiceover taron killam who weirdly his like only major film role since leaving the show or even when he was on the show was 12 years a slave yeah <laughs> whereas what are the like everyone you know talks about as we just talked about you know like uh bob Odenkirk being <laughs> little women and it being distracting 
that's nothing compared to seeing Taron Killam show up to kidnap Chiwetel Ejiofor. That's like, <laughs> that's so weird when he walks on. And it's like, particularly at the time he was still on SNL. So I was just kind of like, it's just seeing him there. You just think this doesn't feel right. It, like Kate McKinnon has obviously done a few more kind of movies where yeah. she was in a small role in Light, Life Partners, co-starred in Ghostbusters, uh, was the co-lead of The Spy Who Dumped Me and most recently has a supporting role in Bombshell. You know, she's obviously kind of carved out a niche for herself, but I think for a lot of the other ones, it's very much like people follow in the the the, the, the path of someone like Kristen Wiig, where they're doing more uh, indie stuff, like Cecily Strong's like only real kind of big film thing was she was had a small part in the movie The Meddler, which is a very nice little kind of like character drama with Rose Byrne and uh, Susan Sarandon. Such a great uh, movie. And J.K. Simmons, let's not forget. Yes. Then someone like Kyle Mooney and uh, uh, Beck Bennett, whose only real kind of film stuff was because they obviously have a pre-existing partnership as as people who work together doing uh, online videos. You know, they did Brigsby Bear together. Um, and Kyle Mooney's also only of the like, major film credit was being the only remotely decent thing in Zoolander 2. Um, mm-hmm. pe- people should watch his, his scene on YouTube. It's very, very funny. He plays just a guy who's completely irony poisoned and talks about how he's got a new tattoo and he hates it. And it's just like spouting nonsense at Derek Zoolander for like two minutes. It's great. And then you have someone like, you know, uh, Mike O'Brien, who was on the show for like a year, I think went then went back to the writer's room and now created the show AP Bio, which Lorne produces. Um, yeah, there's like lots of people who just kind of like go, okay, I was on SNOL, it didn't quite work out for me, I'm going to go and like write stuff. And, and also, you know, favourite of this show, Tim Robinson also kind of has that path as well. The only other person, I guess, really, would be like Leslie Jones, obviously, who was in uh, Top Five Trainwreck and Ghostbusters, but whose like main thing really he, since leaving the show has been stand up. Yeah, know, she's like... she's kind of returned to her roots, really, which is interesting, and I and I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that Leslie Jones is a wonderful, wonderful comic. She is, <clears throat> she is also a black woman in her fifties, <laughs> who there aren't many you know and this isn't this is the fault of this is the fault of the industry that there's not many roles for her and no. i and i think what's interesting is that it's not like anyone in the past few years has really taken off as a specific snl film star they've just been kind of doing films though i wonder if and when kate mckinnon leaves snl whether she'll end up doing a wig mm. so to speak yeah see she seems like she would be the most likely candidate because everyone other people like someone like an ad bryant who obviously is in shrill like that's also again falling under the aegis of like someone who is kind of a versatile performer on the show does lots of stuff and then immediately you know their next project is to you know build a show around themselves and uh which again is produced by uh lorne michaels so there is that it does really feel as if at this stage if someone in SNL is in a movie, it's going to be like some indie thing that they did because, um, you know, it's kind of like interesting work to them and it's probably uh, only takes like three or four days to film so they can get the time off, which I think is always, uh, that has always been a problem. Um, I think if you're working on something that Lorne hasn't produced, uh, it can be hard to kind of go and do other stuff outside of the, uh, outside of the show. But for the most part, 
nowadays there, there doesn't really seem to be that quite as strong a connection between being on SNL and going and you know being in big successful films which I think also points to a broader change in movie going habits in that there aren't as many of those kind of 20 to 30 million dollar comedies being made that were the sort of things that were perfect to kind of like funnel a bunch of SNL people into yeah and I wonder if SNL is just the sweetest gig now like SNL Mm. isn't the means to an end it's the end in itself and you look at like the cast members the past 10 years there's really not been a massive shift in cast for a while no a lot of them are really quite happy to stay where they are and Lorne is clearly very pleased with this batch it's just a very few people sort of filtered out and I wonder it's because a lot of them they're like well I'm being paid very well I actually enjoyed you know how I just think what bigger exposure can you get than SNL as a featured Mm. a featured player yeah which is ironic considering also because of the general attrition of tv ratings in that time like fewer people are probably watching SNL now on television at least but you know because of the internet it's pretty easy for sketches to get rack up millions and millions of views if they're, you know, kind of funny and grab people's attention. Absolutely. So uh, we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot of a Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what are you going to recommend for the listeners this week? I'm going to recommend a podcast that you and I both enjoyed very much, Ed. Mm. My Year in Mensa by Jamie Loftus, yes. who is a brilliant and anarchic stand-up median in her own right but this is such a great podcast to dip into it's quite short it's four episodes of half an hour each and it's really well written and tight and it essentially follows the true story of Jamie Loftus taking the Mensa application test um, as part of an article that she was writing but she didn't anticipate that she was actually going to be accepted and then she digs in further to it and unearths some really nasty stuff, not only about the history of like Mensa and IQ, which I wasn't aware of, but surprise, surprise, it's eugenicism. Um, and But it's also the present day stuff, which is how people mainly treat women on the internet, particularly women who... Um, are putting themselves forward as having opinions. It's also really funny that there is an air horn sound effect that is used to sublime levels. Um, so my year in Mensa, Jamie Loftus, get it, get it listened. Fantastic. I am going to recommend a documentary which is nominated for two Oscars. Uh, it is the documentary Honeyland, directed by uh, Tamara Kotevska and... Lubimir Stefanov. It is a documentary from North Macedonia about rival beekeepers. And the thing about it that is really wonderful for me is the uh, extent to which the documentary trappings in it are pretty much non-existent. I was watching it with my mum because it's on Hulu here in the US. And 10 minutes in, she asked me, is this a documentary or is it like fiction? I was like, oh no, it's a documentary because the there's no, nothing in the way of narration. There's nothing in it to indicate really. There's no talking to camera. It really is, you know, so verite of the, the documentary filmmakers following this this woman around. She 
um, tends to her bees. And then as, you know, she is like showing off the techniques that she uses, that these techniques that have been used for hundreds of years. And as they follow her, she like goes from this farm in the middle of nowhere that she lives in with her elderly mother to the city and to sell her honey and things like that. This family moves in next door who are raising cattle and are trying to kind of make ends meet and then are convinced to try beekeeping themselves which leads to a lot of tension because they do things differently to how she recommends them and things you know kind of spiral from there and it is a beautiful movie it's one of the most beautiful documentaries i've seen it makes really great use of this kind of really um beautiful but kind of deaf desolate empty landscape the quote-unquote characters in it are like beautifully kind of drawn it really does feel like a movie that has tremendous sympathy for everything everyone involved uh, even when the people end up hurting each other as a result of of their conflict and it's just really kind of wonderfully constructed it feels like it has the richness of like a magical realist novel <laughs> you know it almost feels like something that was uh be generated by magical realism dot bot the uh the <laughs> account. but it is a really it's a, just a really wonderful movie i think everyone would everyone should see it. it it just feels so alive and really does point to the great capabilities of documentary filmmaking and yeah so it's as i said it's available on hulu over here in the u.s i think it is is probably available for rent in the uk i think it came out in theaters in the uk uh, a while ago and it's definitely worth checking out so a lot of buzz around it then ed i'm (laughs) so sorry i couldn't i couldn't help myself uh no it definitely called for that If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And live from Glasgow and Florida, this has been Shot Reverse Shot! <laughs> Again, cannot help myself. Someone help me.